Man, it must be so awesome to just write stuff with like zero concern with like the ideological <laughs> pressures being exerted on your thinking or any, you know what I mean? Like, or, or like say, it must be awesome. Like I, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then to like get a job at Oxford for doing that. What an awesome field we got going. I'm Gil. Here with me today, as usual, is Will, Owen, and Lily. Hey, guys. Yo. Hey, everyone. Hi. And for today's episode, we're very excited to be joined by a special guest, John Duncan. Hey, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, John recently submitted his PhD thesis on the relationships between human rights, neoliberalism, and social reproduction in radical social movements based in the United Kingdom. He also runs a YouTube channel, inventively titled John the Duncan, where he presents essays and analyses on a diverse array of topics covering his own academic work, as well as things that uh, annoy him, such as effective altruism. I can also say I'm personally a big fan of the channel, and aside from his video on today's topic, I'm happy to recommend his videos on globalization, degrowth, transphobia, and Shrek 2. <laughs> One of those was a bit of a plot twist at the end, but I love it. <laughs> globalization, yeah. <laughs> yeah, globalization, yeah, exactly. But we're here today to talk about effective altruism. So I'm going to lay a bit of groundwork, introducing some of the core ideas, some critical problems, and then ask a couple questions to open things up for discussion. Effective altruism, or EA for short, has been gaining steam for the past several years, championed most publicly and centrally by Oxford University philosopher Will Mackeskill. It presents itself as a kind of program with two arms, an investigative project to figure out how we can best use our time and resources to help others, and a practical project to actually do that, whatever that is. The basic idea is to figure out what kinds of charity work is most cost-effective, since if you're going to give your money to charity, surely you want to get the most bang for your buck. Presumably, some projects to make things better will make more of a difference than others, and effective altruism is about using the wonderful powers of reason and evidence to determine where your donation should be sent to really change the world. I mean it when I say that it's been gaining steam. There are today thousands of self-identified effective altruists, constituting an active community whose members run numerous organizations dedicated to promoting EA and implementing its ideas in practice. By some estimates, EAA now guides billions of dollars of investment and charitable donations every year. Mackeskill was profiled last year in The New Yorker. His recent book, What We Owe the Future, was a New York Times bestseller. He gave a popular TED Talk a while back in which, as John and I have been saying to each other in the DMs, he commits some truly heinous graph crimes. Uh, some EA supporters, like Toby Ord, also play advisory roles to some of the most evil organizations on the planet, like the World Bank. And it's especially popular with the Silicon Valley tech billionaire crowd for some reason. Right out of the gate, I want to say that Mackeskill and other advocates never get tired of repeating that EA is not just utilitarianism, which is wild to me because it absolutely just is that. <laughs> one of its other boosters and one of Mackeskill's major influences is famed eugenicist Peter Singer. Mackeskill will say things like, hey, effective altruism is actually neutral on basic questions of moral philosophy, and intentionally so in order to be as broadly appealing as possible. Ecumenical, he likes to say. You can subscribe to any moral theory or normative framework you like, and EA should still speak to you. But when it comes to actually defining effective altruism, Mackeskill will say that it's about using the scientific method to determine how best to maximize the good, where the good is tentatively defined as a matter of welfare. So the movement has a place for you as long as you think the right thing to do is to impartially maximize welfare. I, I don't know what else to say. That's Bentham, right? So perhaps a good question to ask is why they're all so <laughs> eager to insist that EA is not a normative utilitarian project uh, when it's barely got a thin coat of paint on that. I think part of the answer to that question has got to be that it's got all the familiar problems of utilitarian reasoning. For one thing, it operates according to a zero-sum, fully calculative rationality. 
we're going to use math to rank the goodness of giving to an organization that distributes mosquito nets against the goodness of giving to an organization trying to stop climate change. So maybe if it's not the same as bog standard utilitarianism, it's because it takes the classical problem of ranking my pleasure and pain versus yours and blows it up to the scale of billions of dollars of capital investment, where what's at stake is the potential welfare of billions of people, trillions, who might someday exist in an imaginary future. <laughs> it's kind of hard to know where to start with this stuff. The presuppositions are numerous and laughable. It suffers from extreme methodological individualism, completely unable to think in terms of social totality, and articulating the pursuit of the good only in terms of what individuals choose to give to charities. No real room is left for any analysis or understanding of social movements. It's historically oblivious. Obviously, it has nothing to say about capitalism, which it totally takes for granted. This is a group of people that has seemingly convinced itself that it's actually very good for them to be hedge fund managers or to run tech startups with the explicit goal of making as much money as possible so that they can give more to the charities that ranking organizations like 80,000 Hours have decided are most effective. No thought is given to whether it is actually bad to extract surplus value in the first place. That scales up too. No real thought is given to why it might be the case that some parts of the globe are wealthy and others impoverished. Effective altruists aren't worried about the legacy of colonialism. They're looking to the future. <laughs> we could talk about how dubious those ranking models are. Since, of course, there's no real way to genuinely quantify the rate of return on a dollar donated to any given charity, and these models actively disincentivize people from supporting causes that can't easily demonstrate their cost effectiveness. Because of its supposed impartiality, this calculative approach can dismiss the poverty of billions of people living today in light of the hypothetical welfare of trillions of people who might exist in the future, so-called long-termism. For this reason, many EA boosters are singularly obsessed with preventing, quote, existential risks to the future existence of humanity, which in practice just means funneling money into AI research to stop an <laughs> evil god from popping out of the internet. The AI thing drives me particularly bananas because it's so silly. It's such obviously bad science fiction dressed up with the suggestion of math that it should be immediately disqualifying to any morally serious person. There's also the fact that you barely need to scratch the surface of the movement to find some real Nazi shit. The same kind of utilitarian quantitative reasoning means that EA finds fellow travelers in people obsessed with IQ, the 20th century's answer to phrenology. This may or may not be an accident, given how movements for racial justice and equity in the present are exactly the sorts of projects that EA will summarily dismiss because they can't prove their cost-effectiveness to the rational charity giver on the go. But the effective altruist will respond that they're just listening to the evidence and just using reason. It's cause neutral, after all. They're just implementing the scientific method. You wouldn't want to be irrational. One of the critical pieces we read about the movement caches this out in terms of reification. For a critical social theorist, it's hard not to see in all this little more than the spontaneous ideology of self-satisfied capitalism. It's toxic moralism. It's blinkered epistemology. But for the effective altruist, this isn't just good. It's so good that any moral system should be amenable to it. I could go on and on, but I really want to hear what you all made of this stuff. Uh, but let me start by asking you, John, yeah, what brought you to thinking about effective altruism? Like, what do you see as its core tenets? And why do you say, as you do in your essay, that you think it's not just misguided, but actively harmful and dangerous? Yeah, so the, the reason I sort of first came across this was because my dad started reading Millie McCaskill's book and started telling me about it. And I was like, this sucks. <laughs> 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 and then, and there are bits and pieces like, I remember when I was in university, an undergrad like 10, 12 years ago, and hearing stuff about earning to give and being like, hmm, that sounds like bullshit. <laughs> uh, and then it sort of disappeared for a while and re-emerged. And then as I started like reading into it and started reading uh, How to Do Good Better, McCaskill's first book, and then What We Owe the Future, and then reading about the connections that it's making, the institutional connections that these people are making within uh, high levels of government, of UN, of World Health Organization, connections, all the amount of money that they're controlling, and the sort of social 
capital that they're directing, it started seeming more actively dangerous, like actively cult-like. And like at first I thought, oh, this is a curiosity. And the more and more I researched about it and more and more I read about it, I was like, oh, this is actually actively bad and dangerous stuff that the impact it's having on like uh, social movements. The, the, there's a book on the good it promises and the harm it does, which largely focuses on its impact on the animal rights movements and how that has further like driven the marketization of these social movements and like squeezed out anything that can't be quantified and really damaged like any anything that doesn't fit into what is like a neoliberal framework of social movement activism and i can see that sort of tendency happen in other sort of other contexts the marketization and the drive to performance evaluate different social movements and the ways that that drives out things that can't be adequately quantified mm-hmm. And I've seen how dangerous and harmful that can be in different movements and then seen it replicated through EA and just sort of ended up seeing it as part of, to be on brand for me, part of like a hegemonic expression of neoliberal ideologies. I forgot the rest of your question. Uh, no, that's great. <laughs> that's really helpful. The institutional connections bit is is fascinating because there's lots of, yeah, organizations that they're getting linked up with and have been getting linked up with very quickly. Uh, so one of us was mentioning before the uh, before we hit record that they'd like have just like a, an enormous castle in, in the UK. Oh, the 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 palatial estate. When I was doing the research and I kept coming across this line about the Center for Effective Altruism, I think uh, is the specific organization. And they now have a palatial estate. And I kept reading that phrase and I was like, oh, they must have like just what, like a big, a big castle. No, they have a palace. It's a palatial <laughs> estate. It's literally a palace. And, and it's called a palatial estate because it's a palatial estate. You all laugh, but trillions of people in the future are going to be so goddamn happy that they have that. Yeah. But y'all just can't see the forest for the trees. I see. I see it. I see how it works. That was that key moment in history when they made like analytic philosophy Versailles, and the rest of, and the rest of the rest of the future was the, re- the good. The good of the future was secured. Can I just say one thing on this on the institutional connections that I found hilarious in? McCaskill's piece on defining effective altruism, he's like trying to address misconceptions about it. And one of them is this misconception, he claims as a misconception, that um, effective altruism ignores systemic change. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, he's going to actually address this. I mean, damn, I hope it's not a good, like, I hope it's not a good rebuttal. I don't really want to spend that much more energy thinking about this shit. <laughs> and and uh, luckily, it was a terrible rebuttal. One of the things he says is, he's like, no, no, we think about systemic change. And his example for this is, the Center for Effective Altruism has provided advice for the World Bank, the WHO, the Department of International <laughs> Development, and Number 10 Downing Street. That, that, that's his evidence for the fact that they are really taking systemic change seriously. I think by systemic change, he means just like politics or something, but that's, a, that's an excellent yeah. answer. Change you can believe in. His description of systemic change is, on the one hand, one big change that can change a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. A big, yeah. It's really, it's no, it, no, it's honestly him for systemic change for him is the most changey kind of change. <laughs> but one of the other examples he gives there is uh, we support poor people moving yeah, out of dude. their poor countries oh, to yeah. uh, stop being poor yeah. because their poor countries are poor for reasons unknown. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's uh, above his pay grade. Okay. So part of me, you know, this is me trying to play my role for like five minutes of trying to like stick up for what could possibly be attractive in this. Right, careful. Is I guess I'm about to red pill myself here. <laughs> you know, I could see someone saying, all right, well, you Marxists, of course you want to change the world, but before the world changes, at least effective altruism is making an argument for how rich people can help. And we certainly would prefer that rich people use their money nicely rather than not. And so I'm wondering if 
if like someone listening to this, like the word effective sounds great. The word altruism <laughs> sounds great. And so I'm, you know, I'm wondering if we could like spell out a bit for, for listeners who might not be deep into the palatial complex, what could be at stake here? Cause maybe we're saying, well, without effective altruism, then maybe people like Bill Gates will just hoard his money. Wouldn't we rather Bill Gates buy mosquito nets? Yeah, I think that, and that, that's like an interest, like their main point, their main like marketing point is that very thing. Isn't it good just to do as much good as we can? We can't change the world, but we can do something. And the big sort of red flag to that reasoning is how much the people like Bill Gates love effective altruism, <laughs> uh, which should raise questions. And you're thinking, well, nothing at all is being threatened here. And there is long history, long research in the role of like wealthy philanthropy in maintaining and projecting the interests of the ruling classes. You know, the, the Gates Foundation has a long history of marketizing areas of smallhold farming in Africa, education. education, whole hosts of areas. AI specifically is a good example of, of where effective altruism is causing harm in that the people that they supposedly want to stop an AI singularity and the way that they seem to be doing that is funneling money towards the biggest corporations that research AI and funnel attention away from relevant issues about AI. For example, you know, sag after is on strike right now because of issues regarding AI performances of, of, of actors. That's of no concern to, to effective altruists. They would rather push that away and start stop you from thinking about that and keep you worrying about Skynet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Terminator 2 is a classic movie. Like, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> so I actually want to ask, um, one thing I just didn't understand, and I think you mentioned it, but so I didn't, I, to be clear, I don't know shit about effective altruism. These are like the first things I've ever read about this. And I also like wonder how much a part of like the Anglosphere it is because I actually saw Alice Crary, I think maybe brainstorm this same paper in Berlin once. And we were all like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and she was like, well, on the continent, you all seem like much more resistant to like the influence of Peter Singer. So like, like I remember there was this motivation gap in the conversation where like we were all sitting around like, okay, like I'm glad you're writing this paper but you know, there, there was, it was so not controversial that I didn't really know how to relate to it. And I think I didn't understand how influential this stuff was. But I guess, like, my basic question is, why does he think it's something different from utilitarianism? <laughs> because it seems like if it is just a species of utilitarianism, then it actually isn't a stupid set of arguments it's a set of arguments that are what you're saying is like structurally embedded in the wrong way but the philosophical defense of them becomes a little bit more complicated but it seems like they want to defend themselves on grounds that are not utilitarianism that are somehow value neutral or like like and and I just didn't really get that so like there's a, something about this where I'm not quite getting like what the argument is about, you know, because if it's just like rich people giving charity, like that's a political argument that is familiar, but it does seem like something more specific is attempting to be said here. I mean, my suspicion, uh, and it might be cynical, my suspicion for the reason that they attempt to push themselves away from being viewed of as just utilitarianism with a fresh lick of paint is to make it look new and fancy mm. uh, and interesting. Because like, who gives a shit about a bunch of Oxford philosophy professors doing utilitarianism again? <laughs> but right. if you've got like a, a new way of of solving the world's problems using you know evidence and reason and facts and logic, something completely revolutionary to to charity giving and altruism, then suddenly that's something that you can pitch and market to folk. And one of the interesting things I think is sort of as a social movement is that it's not internally it's not always been about this charity given the long-termism stuff 
is the stuff that they've really been into. The stuff about existential risk and about colonizing space. And uh, there's lots of like internal stuff where they've been like, hook people in with this easy altruistic stuff. And then once they get embedded within the structure of the organization, then start getting them more on board with the long-termism stuff. So I wonder if there's maybe some sort of marketing and rhetorical strategy to that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the marketing has got to be a, uh, a major part of it. I mean, like tech, you go to those like tech billionaires and you just uh, say, hey, we, I've got this really cool philosophy called utilitarianism. Uh, it's been around for a long time. We've been talking about it forever. Like that's not going to have the same <laughs> traction as we've had a major breakthrough, right? Tech people love like fake innovations. <laughs> It's a right? disruption. So like, They're disruptive. They love the, disruption. The yeah, exactly. Disruption. <laughs> so like, yeah, if you show up and you're like, we've got this totally path-breaking new way of thinking, uh, like called effective altruism. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think that's absolutely right that it's primarily like marketing driven, you know, and also he does say one thing about utilitarianism that is different, uh, or, sorry, that differentiates EA from, from utilitarianism. And that's that it doesn't ask an, uh, anyone to sacrifice anything. So <laughs> Like, that's awesome. You took, like, the one thing that is, like, potentially compelling about a moral theory. It actually might involve some some pain or some sacrifice or some, you know, like, some act of struggle. And he takes that out of it. He's like, no, no, it's got to be easy because it's more marketable. If you, It's got to be easy, basically. So here's my, like, maybe to, like, refine the question. The thought, like, it was that paragraph that I was meditating on, the one that where he mentioned what you just said, Owen. And he was like, the reason it's not utilitarianism is that it somehow avoids the question questions of value you know utilitarians have a measure of value like they have happiness and you might even have different goods different pleasures and you're trying to figure out what combination of them produces the most happiness like there's a there's a and he's trying to say something like it's not that but it is that because his his is welfare (laughs) yeah it's welfare. so it's just well like yeah welfare but does that like get him out of like saying what welfare is like that's what i'm i'm asking like in this right. big schema where do values and welfare come in and, and like alex alice query seemed to mention that there was a kind of like positivist reduction happening here my, my question is this like utilitarianism like on steroids like without any of the actual philosophical support you would find <laughs> in regular utilitarianism, which I think would be like much more defensible. Yes. I mean, I can't speak to the philosophy. I'm not a philosopher, so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but sorry, the, sorry the, if this is like too, I, I just, <laughs> I like, I, I really, I'm, I'm not totally capturing like what this thing is. And if it's like you, what we do people is we use data, we crunch numbers and we're like, what's the greatest good? You know, the, the theory question is like, well, what's good, you know? And it seems mm-hmm. like they're like, we don't need to answer that question. Is that like what's happening? <laughs> So this is like a whole anti-intellectual enterprise of like help helping people. <laughs> the way that the the reductionist methods of finding like what's good is again it's hugely neoliberal. It's all mm-hmm. it's all about quality uh, quality adjusted life years, right. very reductionist sort of health uh, measurement notions that are pushed beyond any notion of being useful when they're like extracted extrapolated beyond that and cost effectiveness is the other big one so at quality life assurance and cost effectiveness put together and that's value that's that's Mm. how you've done good Mm. what's incredible is this is written as if it presupposes no sort of moral worldview no sort of values and yet it is thoroughly laden with a type of worldview and a type of value structure. The reason why people like Bentham and Mill are more defensible is because, you know what, they actually thought through what they were arguing and tried to defend it. Mm -hmm. But it seems like what I read from EA, well, William Billy, uh, as he might be called, (laughs) is he's like, no, 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 no. I don't have to get caught up in the metaphysics and adjudicating goods. I'm just looking at grass, brah. <laughs> and then you start looking at what you know he gets from the grass. He's like, wow, this actually just sounds like the values of the world that I live in. But you're acting as if that's neutral and that's natural. And so I was wondering if there's another not defended value here. But the reason why we might be worried about effective altruism is if we track how capital shapes the world, we understand that capital or donating or money is not simply throwing cash somewhere. It is also a form or a mechanism of control. 
And so some some of this, you know, if I were really in psychoanalysis, I I think there's a real sort of paranoia about controlling the future here. <laughs> totally. And so this, you know, this attention to graphs and all of that is not just, you know, get bang for your buck. It's how much dominion can you have over the types of changes that will happen in the world? And then it seems like this is rather different than, you know, sort of theory of liberation or freedom. This seems to be a theory of calculation, control, and value neutral domination. So that's what I, you know, the way that I would also think about it is you can think of it as, isn't it good for rich people to give their money? But, you know, you can do the thing of, well, how did they become rich in the first place? They can, you know, jump over that by being like, we're just accepting the world the way it is. We're trying to deal with it on its conditions. But the money is never just money. Yeah. When capital flows to particular places, it does create you know, um, social relations, patterns, etc. And so those things are completely mystified mm -hmm. in this invocation of we just want people to give well. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I found it slowly striking that there's no – there's like a systematic erasure of any question of like power who, who ought to – exert power and possess power. And so like he, you never hear anything about how the people that are in dire poverty or um, the people that, you know, EA is meant to like benefit, like how they might themselves actually exert some control over these social <laughs> yeah. and economic processes that they are subject to. That is, that question is entirely gone. It's like the, yeah. the, everything hinges on, we got to get our people, we got to keep the people that are in elite positions uh, right currently keep them in those elite positions and in fact he's always bragging about how he's spending all this time with like billionaires and <laughs> spending all this time with like powerful just in the thing i read a minute ago too he like loves you could see how he just gets off on like proximity to power that all is like great we just got to get them to kind of abide a little bit more by my priorities for philanthropy rather than the current ones they have. I mean, not even his priorities. What the numbers? Oh, that's say. true. The objective. The, the objective priority of uh, yeah. I think the best example, the best sort of example of that specific trend of his thought, is his discussion of the abolition of slavery yes. in the the book on long termism, which broke me <laughs> and quite quite significantly because the entire story is reduced to a, a value change of the british elite it's mm -hmm. it's that whole thing that classic phrase of you would almost think that britain had uh, brought in slavery so that they could so abolish they could it. Fall, yeah. um uh he talks about he he, he he, he brings up things like Eric Williams' classic study on yeah, uh, slavery, slavery. Yeah. Um, and completely mischaracterizes just, just it as saying it. that, like, like in an, an absurd way, he brings up, he's like, oh, Eric Williams' classic study says that the abolition of slavery was always inevitable because of economics. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm, that is obscene that is an obscene view and then he uses that to discount any sort of economic like real economic uh, restructuring of hegemonic powers and global capital relations or any story any agency of enslaved people in that story he doesn't talk about the Haitian revolution or anything he like brings it up <laughs> in a sentence and then says it's oh this could also have played a part now let's get back to Wilberforce. Yeah, no, I, I've yeah. In one of the talks, I heard him. I heard him go on about this, and he, I guess, is bringing it up pretty frequently now because he sees what he's doing as like, you know, it took it took hundreds of years for the abolition of slavery to get off the ground, and he says it started with one petition. In, you know, in the 1600s, it was just right? Benjamin Lay. And then it was eventually there's more petitions. And then it was like this whole, <laughs> the values changed, right? So, I mean, in some ways, just a classical yeah. idealist picture of history, which is to say no no picture of history whatsoever, where like the way, yeah. his, the way history changes is that people's minds are getting progressively changed and they're becoming better people. And so they like institute systems that are better. And like, it's, it's a microcosm of effective altruism because it's, change the values of these white people with power at the top and they can improve the lives of all of these objectified people, objectified, racialized people in the global south who don't have any agency. Hmm. They, they have no agency in this story well, They don't all. have any thoughts either. I never hear what they think about any of this. <laughs> they're, they're literally just objects yeah. to be filtered into a calculus. That's it. And I think that I think the, the chapter in long-termism on slavery is probably the best sort of 
reduction of the entire project of effective altruism and long-termism because of what it reveals. Man, it must be so awesome to just write stuff with like zero concern with like the ideological <laughs> pressures being exerted on your thinking or any, you know what I mean? Like, or, or like say, it must be uh, awesome. Like I, yeah. and then, and then to like get a job at Oxford for doing that. What an awesome field we got going. This is like the paranoid neurosis of like a pre-modern mind. You know what I mean? Like there's <laughs> <laughs> like modernity is like, you know, human beings, at least is the story we tell ourselves, like human beings become conscious of themselves and like, you know, Hegel's the one who's like, he does it big. I just feel like we're seeing like all the symptoms of modernity without like with no self-consciousness. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? It is like, it is like the most un well, That's why I keep asking these questions thing. about like, like value. Like, I just feel like there has to be a better, like there has to be a better argument. And it's like, it feels like a, like, like a pre-enlightenment argument that's like trying to solve <laughs> post-enlightenment problem. Like that's what I'm oh, saying about like, yeah, the, pr- like the paranoid neurosis of like the pre-modern mind. Like he's, he's dealing with a cosmos here, like not with the world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, like, and there's a kind of like mysticism to it, you know, you like, yeah. like it's gonna, like you can calculate these effects and like, you know, even if you don't think you can control, like you wanted to control the future, but like if it doesn't work out the way you planned, then like you could appeal to some kind of like fate, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, this ties in with the, I like this like the idea of it, it's pre-modern like epistemology. It's such like weirdly naive empiricism. Like it can't grasp at structural change or structural causality or historical processes, material conditions, none of that. And this ends up getting reflected in super weird ways in the defining um, definition of effective altruism piece, he gives like all of these justifications for why the definition has the characteristics that it does, right? For instance, like why is it welfareist or why is it not a normative theory, right? This is one of the questions we've already talked about. Why is it not a normative claim? And the first thing he says always is like, well, because we polled the members of the effective altruism oh, community. Right. Yes. I thought so that good. rocks. Yes, this yes. is awesome. And yes. 70% yeah. of them said it's yeah. not. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Go back to episode two and listen to Gil rant about polling. Yeah. This is great. Polling, yeah. I couldn't believe when I read that. I was like, wait, hold up. You're trying <laughs> to adjudicate a theoretical stance by polling people who are interested in that stance? That's an amazing move. <laughs> no yeah. questions were asked. democratic yeah. accountability, bro. <laughs> I mean, what I find fascinating here is that effective altruism, it fronts as if it is, you know, again, the sort of neutral view. But then even the short conversation we just had about slavering long-termism, all of a sudden, like, wait a second, effective altruism is also a theory of history? Well, where, where did that come from? Like, yeah. you know, but then... Charitably. You, <laughs> yeah, charitably, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it seems to me that what's going on here, it, there's more than simply let's get rich people to give money. And I keep saying that because I imagine someone could listen to this and be like, oh, what's left of philosophy? You don't want the world to be even mildly better? Like, no, believe me, we do. Reforms are good. All of that is great. <laughs> but it seems like there's so much more at stake here than the idea of can we hopefully convince some rich people to throw some cash at the speechless three-fourths of humanity. It's also trying to tell us about this is actually how change happens. And that sort of cavalier way of reading history is belied by this agnosticism William McCaskill seems to have. of just like, hey, you know, I'm not making any big claims. I'm just following the numbers. But I'm like, no, there is an ideology here in the pejorative sense. And it's like, you know, they microdose it into Because it actually isn't, I mean, so giving money, I think, is the biggest part of it. But you're right, because it goes further than it's, it, it is like, in a certain way, trying to promote particular forms of life. Like, he says, like, you know, this idea of, like, earning to, what is it called? Earn to give? Earning to give. Earning to give, yeah. yeah like, really encouraging people to go into finance, to really deeply integrate into the capitalist economy and reap the most benefit you possibly can out of it. Like build your career with this EA stuff in mind, knowing that like the more money you make, like the more like good you can do, which is so awesome that he keeps using the example of finance. I mean, you just go into finance, you enrich (laughs) yourself by like totally pillaging and destroying like the, you know, the DRC in Africa or something. And then all of a sudden, like you give, you know, 10% of that back. Give the mosquito net. You give 20 back. (laughs) You give those people 
people whose like whose entire like fucking villages were completely destroyed by some mining operation. You send back some mosquito nets for them after you've fucking decimated their town. Eighty thousand hours. The website recommends working for DARPA. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 I, now I see the world truly will be different if EA <laughs> gets its way. But I just want to say one last thing about the the slavery thing because what I love about that example, at least from the way you presented it, it's also a way of saying. So change might not have seemed like it was happening at first. It took hundreds of years, which you can see is a way of saying, look. I know it might seem like the world's not getting better yeah. with us hanging out with these billionaires, but give it 300 years, though. Just wait. Yeah. Well, you won't be here, but they'll be grateful. We promise. There's, like, <laughs> there's interesting things about it. Because, like, the thing that he wants to stress is that it's very contingent, that it isn't something that's inevitably going to happen. We need to do this stuff now, which I think is a way of, like, impressing the importance of doing effective altruism and giving money to us now and really reflecting and the stuff that gets in my head a lot is how neoliberal all this stuff is like because it's not just about giving to charity it's always framed as like investing mm -hmm. and being mm -hmm. a moral entrepreneur is a wow. big word that he Love uses that a lot phrase. very normal just feel like vapors rising from the grave <laughs> just like um hello <laughs> One of the big things that he says in that in the slavery chapter was that it's still insisting that there is no economic or ideological basis. This is a book which is based on facts, and he stresses that the book has been fact checked by so many people, so it's all so facts. Um, but the reason Peter that slavery, <laughs> the reason that uh, one of the major uh, uh, reasons for the value change was liberal ideology and free market capitalism, mm -hmm. um, and. To me, that would that would be, I don't know, you could profess some degree of materialist understanding, like a right-wing materialist understanding of like capitalist free market economics yeah. comes up. But he completely, that, that does not play a part. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's just presented and then discounted and we move on. Uh, it's about the, ideal, the, the value change. And I think there was something interesting that you said earlier about the ways in which the sort of liberal and neoliberal ideologies, or, or what I interpreted that as, as you're saying, neoliberal sort of hegemony produces, is embroiled within this theory of where capital flows for charity investment. And something I'm really interested in is how areas of social reproduction are privatized. And through through marketization of, of previously state-held areas of social reproduction, which aren't necessarily good, but like, I don't know, food banks, things like that. Effective altruism will marketize it, will make it sure that as much capital is flowing into these easily quantifiable and marketizable areas, which are social reproduction. And that is an essential part of neoliberalism, in mm -hmm. my view. So it's not just like about rich people giving money to charity. It's about projecting this specific part of new and strengthening it yeah and yeah. strengthening See, it's really yeah. hard to take seriously like uh, work like this because it just is so dishonest and so obfuscatory about like what it's doing i mean I, in order i think to be to be taken seriously i think it would first of all this he's got to make a an argument for the market instead of just having it be in the background as like the obviously most efficient way for like resources to be distributed like you need we need a pro capitalist uh. A pro-capitalist like argument. Pinker. It's like the Stephen Pinker yeah. view of like of the world in the market, though, right? Like, there's the in that TED talk, he's got a graph. One of the graphs, one of the, the biggest I just graph brought crimes. Up. <laughs> you brought it up, yeah. One of the graph crimes he commits is he's got a, a graph of GDP. I think per capita. I don't. Maybe just GDP. Yeah, I think it's a GDP. Um, yeah. Over well, the the, the y-axis does just say value. Because he literally says both. He says both. He, he's like, he, he's like, it's, he's like over thousands, tens of thousands of years of, he's like human beings have been around for 200,000 years. Let's look at GDP starting from this, from the beginning there when it's very low. There's almost yeah. no GDP at all 200,000 years ago. And then just in like Not the very. 1800s, it really skyrockets. And he's like, and then he's like, and this is also, uh, this is, a sign of progress and of like the increase of value. It's like okay, the human progress and flourishing and is yeah, flourishing. Yeah, up and up until uh, the mid nineteenth century, there was no happened. human flourishing. <laughs> there was no human yeah. progress, no flourishing. Yeah. Flat then something interesting happens. Then he projects this yes. graph uh. by two million years. <laughs> 
Oh, oh, fucking let's fucking we ball. All right. You said your average mammalian species lasts like two million years, and we've only been around for like two hundred thousand. So we've got this like huge, and he, that's why he compares us to adolescents. He says like what humanity right now are like um teen, oh, we're like teenagers, ah. right? And we need to right. really do take seriously like what our our future is going to be. We can't just be recklessly going running around getting drunk and having fun. You gotta we, we're trying <laughs> we're trying to set up our future species life. Right, we have to go into the family business. Yeah, dude, I didn't even know I was so right about the pre-modern thing. Yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but he is I, I, I said that based on the content of the argument, but I actually didn't catch that he said we were like adolescents. He says we're he's adolescents. He literally calls us the ancients. He says we're the we are oh the ancients God. right now. Like you know, like in the, what they will look back on us as. What a fucking yeah. nerd. I know. Bro, bro. <laughs> bro, just imagine in the million years, there's going to be so much value. We're just going to be drowning in value. Yeah. Like so your back will be broken yeah. from value, man. It's awesome. He actually says at one point, he's like, you know, like po poverty reduction won't actually be that important in the near future because there just probably won't. Oh, my God. He says there probably Dude. won't be poverty or there probably won't be very much poverty. Um, yeah. Just because like, yeah. Theodicy. I don't know what I mean, value. One of his justifications for uh, market capitalism is that it reduces poverty, which has led him to outright advocate for the increase in sweatshops. That's right. Nice. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that, that's. What does that mean? Wow. Well, because sweatshops are, it's developmentalist. It's like, oh, sweatshops are part yeah. of the development of economic prosperity in global south countries. So we need to increase sweatshops to produce the ec the economic prosperity that will produce mm -hmm. the poverty Because the sweatshops are, you know, it's a job. You know? <laughs> it's not nothing. And you start to get, you know, you learn the habits. You wake up at 9 a.m. You wake up at 8 a.m. You get to your job yeah. at 9. You're starting to learn the, Time you know, this. Discipline. I mean, I don't have any. Trans-historical I have no normative set. commitments, but I, it's great that you start to learn this particular way of existing and living. Wow. I, you know what? Never mind. EA rocks. Bringing us all into modernity. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, okay. We're, le we're learning to stand. We're crawling right it's now. It's a really cool moment. It's like one of the last things in his little section on, again, his defense of uh, why effective altruism doesn't ignore systemic change, actually. Which, again, it's so funny. He's just like, the, the, the first thing that you brought up, John, is the one that like killed me, too. Where he's like, no, that's not true. Some effective altruists advocate for essentially getting rid of border controls so that we can increase the flows of migrant labor so that poor people can leave poor countries, which presumably just have to stay poor, but they can move to rich countries. And that's cool. That's systemic. Um, I but hate then, to bring it up again, but yeah. like Hayek is fucking loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Hayek's my boy, and he's probably reading just like, damn, we still out here. I thought you could keep me down. But he, oh, says, he says, like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, some it's plausible that there are some, quote, systemic interventions that some people in the EA community are missing. You know, maybe, for instance, people would try to, like, work on poverty. But he says, first of all, you know, the chance of those campaigns being successful is astronomically low. And even if it were successful, in the best case scenarios, those changes would occur a lot of decades from now, when the problem of extreme poverty will probably be far smaller and less severe than it is today. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking what? about? What do you mean? What do you mean? Like, what is like, the empirical... When a graph goes up, it will always line, and line forever up, go up. <laughs> you know, what's great is, you know, with this graph, it's like, any questions you have for me, I direct you to the graph. You see how <laughs> it's pointing up, right? Yeah. Up is yeah. good. It's literally and just it like, like posting the graph emoji, like, over and over and over again. Like, <laughs> no, we're going up, 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 up. Stonks are up. Like, we're all, everything's heading up. <laughs> like, fuck GDP. All my homies but, hate GDP. You know, but I, I, I do have, like, two more things I, 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 I want to say about ea about how you know fucking baller it is this crushes you know <laughs> one one way to look at it is part of the unsaid premise here is if we're trying to convince rich people how to give well through these graphs presumably these rich people need to have as much control over their capital as possible you know what that means the state is often very inefficient on how it so allocates oh, that's capital. lurking in the background a lot of what he's saying in yeah. a way we need to move away from those state-funded projects that aren't as nimble and allow for the you know the expansion of the entrepreneurs and so <laughs> just to be clear I'm not saying the state does everything perfectly but that is a very political consequence even if it's not argued 
Second, you know, I do just want to like flag real quick. You know, I don't want to like tar the whole movement, but a lot of eugenicists have been liking this. Yes. And partially it's because it turns out there is no graph you can look at that can tell you what you think the future ought to be like. And so that argument is already happening. Yeah. And so if EA is saying this is about controlling the future, well, who gets to influence the project also is going to come with their vision of what the future looks yeah. like. Unless you have normative commitments explicitly against something like that. And it turns out the people whose vision of the future are empowered within this worldview are fucking tech fetish nerds and consultants. It's also important, I think, to point out, because EA people say what you will about them. They're annoying. And they will bring <laughs> up, like, true. there's a very plausible deniability in a nice. lot of this stuff. And this is very evident in McCaskill's work, where he will say stuff and something like the slavery argument, he'll say, oh, I mentioned... The, the a slave revolt so i'm not saying it's not important i'm not saying economics isn't important it's there's a plausible deniability mm-hmm. and the strongest area in which that is clear uh, the, the area where, where that's clearest is his discussion of the value of future people where the implications the political implications of the argument he's making where a person existing is always morally better than a person not existing, provided that person's living standard a is adequately standard. high enough. Yeah. The the implications for that, political implication, oh, uh, implications see. are either <laughs> pro-life, misogynistic pro-life, or eugenicist. But he gets round that by, well, he ignores the eugenicist one. He doesn't deal with that. But he says, of course, I'm saying that people should be able to have control of their bodies. That's Of course, women should be able to have abortions. But every life is more valuable than a non-life. It's really cool living without any sort of normative reasons. So you can just (laughs) say things and be like, but you know. Also, like this norm I adhere to, but also it's not up to me. No, I mean, literally, <laughs> I would just, he's just like presenting a bazillion norms that he adheres to and thinks should be globally hegemonic, but that he, but he won't argue for any of them. That's his, that's his version of value neutrality is like, I'm not going to make any normative <laughs> arguments. I'm just going to have like a ton of super value laden <laughs> claims based structuring my whole argument. But I'm not going to address them, and that's that's yeah. that's so we can all so be a part did, of this. Like, how did this guy like get through the academic system? Like, how did this fucker end up at Oxford? Be- like, I just feel <laughs> well, like a different dissertation defense or like peer review could have like, like I yeah. really this whole conversation. Like, I'm glad we're talking about this. I feel like I've learned a lot, but I'm genuinely perplexed at like. I have had feelings about peer review being a racket for a long time, but like. What the fuck is going on? Like, how is this happening that this guy likes, like, like, it just makes me feel like, what are we doing? And and this is a serious question. Like, what are we doing? Like, you make all these arguments and then I'm spending all my time thinking about the norms that I prefer and why they're better than your norms. And I'm writing for grants and I'm writing a book and I'm like, wow, I'm going to assess my perspective versus other perspectives. And I'm going to defend my norms over your norms. And this guy's at Oxford just having a ball like what yeah. is happening he's just wiling out on like, like this is literally our job like i like this is very <laughs> academic i'm sorry but like this is literally his job he's not just at oxford oh. he is the youngest ever professor of oxford Ooh. at oxford uh, oh god he's he's like a, he is a path breaker <laughs> oh my uh, god he's like a prodigy yeah and that that was the thing that 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 initially got me annoyed when my dad was talking about it. He was like, oh, he's the youngest ever Oxford professor, so he must know what he was talking about. And I was like, I bet not. (laughs) 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 But, I mean, it it is really true, just like you, to to echo what Lillian was saying and all of that. It's just wild to put so much effort into trying to sort of self-critique and make sure you have justifications, and then someone just comes along getting handed millions, maybe billions of dollars, and he's like, actually, I'm good. And people jump all over the critics of EA's backs being like, you're not being as generous as possible. Like, you know what? I think on this episode, we were as generous as we needed to be. (laughs) When you help command billions of dollars, you can take some punches because fuck, that's actual power right there. 
<laughs> I just think, and this is just off the top of my head, I don't know if anyone's ever said this before, but I just think that the ideas of the ruling class are never epoch the ruling ideas. And <laughs> that's, <laughs> you know, I've heard that line before. It, oh, it, it's a banger. That's just something that came off the top Was of my that, head. Uh, John Stuart Mill, I think, said that. <laughs> like, this is the kind of claim that is just so obviously, like, straightforwardly true that, like, I feel, like, annoyed that there's a way in which in like theoretical discussion, the fact that that claim is basically 90% true and like is mm-hmm. totally eclipsed by all of this weird quibbling about the other 10%. And that really <laughs> pisses me off because the claim is obviously legitimate. And if you're like, what in, what ideas are influencing the world right now? Well, you know, they're not poor people's ideas <laughs> overall. Just, I'm just no. saying, like, there's something yeah, yeah. like no. so. This that's just true. Well, that, that's why I was saying I was like you know, reading his like stuff. I'm like starving the whole time to hear what some of these poor people have to say about their own fucking condition and like their own place in the. Somehow they didn't get polled. <laughs> yeah, they they should have joined the yeah. yeah. if they the wanted ball. their voice heard. Well, no, he's really into people whose voices can't be heard and kind of like keeping like his ideal moral like moral objects. I won't even say subjects, right? Because they don't do anything. Um, but his ideal like moral objects tend to be entities that cannot say anything. So he'll frequently say like, you know, the problem with these people in the future is like, he almost sounds like super sympathetic with them because they can't, they can't have their voice heard. We're really hogging the, we're really hogging the space. Right. And he compares it to at one point saying like, what if somebody in like Singapore made all the decisions for the United States or for the UK or something, right? Like that's how he thinks of us making decisions for the, and like feels really bad for them. And it's also, I think it also feeds into the intense focus on animal welfare. Like just loving, loving objects of morality that can never say or do anything or rebut what they're saying what he's saying and i think that gets really into the like the rationality the performative rationality of it all uh, about constructing this ideal of a rational subject and object Mm -hmm. split where you can control the world through testable through through randomized control trials through things that that you know naive empiricism being the thing that's extended to people these people are just all humans yeah, the problem with humans is they might resist control and it almost just like frustrates them to no <laughs> yeah. end that you know what i mean that like the humans are so are, are so stupid and we're so um so focused on what's uh, close to us he's very frustrated by how partial humans are like that we're more concerned about friends and family for example than like strangers like that's irrational you should not like you know it, it's an amazing to call that irrational too to say that like i don't know fellow feeling and reciprocity and obligate mutual obligation and stuff like all all that stuff is not for him that's all irrational and it's, it's like really bedrock for being human it's very very well established long feminist political thought about how that particular type of rationality is uh, mm-hmm. foundational to modern patriarchy about excluding women from the like the concept of rational actors and that's like extremely clear as part of the the way that he talks about children and the like a, a friend of mine did a, another video abby abby farm from the philosophy tube did another video on effective altruism where she was much kinder to it because she's got more patience than me and <laughs> at one point she said mccaskill would have been been right and should have like consulted some women when he was writing this book because like clearly the implications of this reasoning are pro-life and like misogynistic and i don't think that would have helped he could have consulted women <laughs> but the foundational logic rationalist logic is profoundly patriarchal uh, and it's racist and it's ableist as well and like the 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 all the stuff about like intelligence and uh, the stuff that feeds in from singer profoundly yeah. ableist and excluding certain people from the ability to control their own lives uh, it's all to be controlled for them by benevolent actors. I agree with that. I would just qualify it by saying that it's not a very rational form of rationalism. It's actually quite an irrational form of rationalism that is that absolutely fetishize, fetishizes numerical mm. reasoning and excludes every other part of cognition, every other con- contributor to cognition that makes up what a truly robust conception of reason is. Like, it doesn't read to me as rational. It actually reads to me as like, aesthetically rational yeah, yeah, yeah you know what i mean it's aesthetically yeah, and it's, it's also yeah. just like like it's weirdly old-fashioned like if you want to have a serious argument about economics you're not going to argue with people who think this stupid stuff like <laughs> no i'm serious like the, like this is so 
outdated and like not even what any mainstream, even the most right wing neoclassical economists don't think this. Like, you know, like it's so like the are like the critiques have been made about, you know, the model of rationality that supports modeling of, of, of trade-offs and everything. This critique has been made so robustly from all corners that like the actual field of economics is like full of people who have already thought about this and taken it on board. So I think like what pisses me off about this and not about like having the conversation is that in a way it's a total red herring for like how to debate about problems because like actual debates about problems would involve taking on those people. Like, why is it that their way of thinking about the economy is wrong? That's a serious argument. This is not a serious argument. And I guess I, I like, I find it amazing that this fucking grift can absorb so much time and attention from like people that it's it's like bizarre so much discourse so much it's discourse. like, yeah, like it's a, maybe it's an op it's, it's, you know yeah, you're doing god's op. work by putting it on the internet like i like I, i'm not trying to knock the effort to argue with it but like once i kind of like realized what this was i was like are there any like serious people who are actually interested in development like as such that would take this seriously no you know, like not even not even mainstream institutions would take it seriously. I wonder. I don't know. The LSE. I feel like there's has traction in some in some institu- like academic institutions. Like there's, I think there's like faculty at the LSE that like work on this stuff. Like, yeah, there is. There does seem to be some kind of academic yeah community. Uh, I, again, I don't know if that if there if it's the people if it's people you're describing, Lillian. But I mean, it, yeah, it's hard to say. But you know, it seems like it, and it is pulling in actual money. And I think yeah, part of it is it does affect how we discursively talk about this. But I also think who knows what the further effects are. But the vision of politics that's embedded for this framework to to work out really is. And oh, and you kind of said this is it's a model of benevolent rulers doing good onto those who don't know how to do good for themselves. And of course, they'll dress it up in nice, fancy Oxford language. But the world is there are billions of people who don't know how to live for themselves. So we need to talk to the powerful who will, whether they want it or not, are going to get the freedom they deserve. Yeah, it's the same exact it's the same exact thing to him to, you know, give mosquito nets to Africans who couldn't make mosquito nets for themselves as it is to, like, improve the uh, the lives of hens in uh, egg-laying factories who also couldn't have liberated themselves. Yeah. There's some lines that were just, like, pretty sickening to me. Like, talking about, like, the amount of people that have – or the amount of children that have died of, like, preventable diseases. And then in the next line, it's like, yeah, and the amount of, like, chickens that yeah. are, like, you know, in cages. And and I just, like, pause on it. And it's like, this is the shit that – makes me fucking hate animal discourse so much. <laughs> it is. It's, this is just dehumanization endemic to capital. It just is. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what to say about it. We- weird that it's the most popular shit amongst like uh, the ruling class. Weird, eh? Yeah. I sent, I sent you, Gil, uh, that article about the close connections in number 10 mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, with lots of EA movements and just highlighting how spookily influential it is and my, you know my flatmate describes it as a cult which i don't think is entirely untrue oh, i mean i made a joke in a video where like they, they talk about getting people into ea in a funnel system it's awesome. and i drew out their funnel system and then turned it around <laughs> and it's just a pyramid <laughs> <laughs> and um but like they have all these connections in number 10 and and uh, and all these like high level institutions that have huge amounts of like support they have altered government policy on things like specifically the, the last article i read on on ai policy um specifically to be concerned about singularity stuff and to funnel more money towards yeah. the companies that have huge amounts of funding from the various ea groups as it is so already funneling money back towards themselves via government policy and it's spooky hmm. it's bad spooky shit i think it's so great that he thanks and acknowledges uh all the consultants that helped him write the book uh, in the introduction that's awesome wow you, like you so rarely hear this kind of honesty he's like he's like this is actually a shared project it's really a communal work it's me lots of consultants really helped me put this together Fact checkers <laughs> yeah exactly lots of value lots of value neutral consultants lockheed martin <laughs> what is the world except a massive accumulation of facts hell yeah <laughs> yeah I love it. 
All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today. And we'd like uh, once again to thank John Duncan for joining us. John, would you like to tell our audience about where they can find you online and about anything you've got coming up? Yeah, uh, you can find me everywhere under the handle John the Duncan. I've got some fucking brand, brand consistency, baby. <laughs> we love uh, it. <laughs> just everywhere, John the Duncan. Uh, stuff that I've got coming up, I'm working on something, but I don't know how long it's going to take on the notion of like public intellectualism and how things like the stuff that I do on YouTube is reproducing particular kinds of public intellectualism, which are probably not great, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway, because I need to eat. You know, that that's the thing I'm working on so far. And you do good work. I mean, that video, your, your EA video, people should check it out. It's fantastic. Absolutely. If you want to see me microwave a tongue and be grossed out by that. I now have three spare fake tongues in my house because they only sell them in packs of threes. So if anyone, <laughs> look, if anyone needs a spare fake tongue, hit me up. <laughs> I didn't know you. They were fake when you first said that. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Weird, very cool. All right. Well, new episodes of What's Up the Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and are really grateful. Today's new Patreons are Kasten Butt, Scott Chaverdian, Dan Seal, Santiago Patrick Leslin Pulido, Julia, Teo Dobrovolskis, Friday, Jared Snyder, Thomas Purcell, Rashad Dixon, Sandra Zadkovich, Tomi Kolapko, Ilmari Vaklin, Christopher Nine, Liv Summers, Anthony Mann, Min Wen, Keat, Jake Prism, and Tom Kemp. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos and access to our Discord server. In addition, you can support us by buying some What's Up to Philosophy merch, which you can also find through our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.